Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. It was great to start the service this morning with the reminder that we come to God through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, as revealed in God's word alone, and, and it's all for God's glory alone. And as we open up our Bibles today, let's remember that, that we come to God uh, by grace through Christ. And um, even as we read the word, uh, our understanding of the word is, is really dependent upon our relationship with Christ. And because when we know Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the word. But let's read Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 34. We'll go through verse 39. And we're talking about a painful subject today, crucifixion. Here's what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lord God, as as we come to your word together today, we are deeply remembering that you and you alone hold our lives in the palm of your hands. We are dependent upon you for life and breath and everything. Lord, we come to you today, people with a lot of things on our hearts, in our minds, um, things coming against us, things going out from us, um, joys, heartaches, and everything in between. And so, Lord, we ask you today, as we look at a passage of Scripture that is tough to understand, we pray that you would teach us and that you would have your way with us and that you would be glorified in the process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it has been quite a while now as we've been going verse by verse through Matthew's gospel and this is now the 70th message in Matthew and as we've been going through we've seen we started when we looked in Matthew with Christ's earthly beginnings, how, how he came to earth and what, what was going on at that time. And, and it moved quickly from some of the, the, the early life of Christ to his, his life-altering Sermon on the Mount in, in chapters 5 through 7. And what we saw there was what it means to live our lives in, in the way of Jesus, following him. And then we saw stuff that Jesus did based on what he said. He didn't just preach. He did the very things he spoke of. Now, for the past five weeks, we've been in this context of Jesus sending his disciples out. And out into a hostile world. And we've been exposed to what it means to live and to give the gospel... And 
what it means as, as, we, as we live in Christ to do that in the settings in which we live. And, and it's really centered on the gospel. It, he, he gave them these instructions, and, and one of the most important instructions was to go and preach. And we've got to remember the gospel that, uh, that Jesus is, is talking about. It's the gospel by which we are saved, and by which we live, and in which we grow, and it, with, in what we, sh- we seek to share with other people. And the gospel is, is the Greek word euangelion, and it, it means... Quite simply, good news. It, it's good news of a big victory. You hear victories all the time. You know, you hear that your favorite team won or your favorite team lost, and 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 the news goes out. And in those days, when your your favorite uh, country was at war, you would be waiting eagerly for the news whether there was victory or not. Well, the gospel is the good news of great victory. It is God's victory over sin and death and hell and Satan at the cross. It's Christ's victory. And it is really captured in those five solas of the Reformation that that Billy started the service with. Um, And and lest you think that that's just, well, that's from way back. Well, that's what what our our beliefs are are based upon. those, Those truths that are found in Scripture. And, and they're significant. And, and so we're, we're, we've got to remember that the gospel is good news of what Christ has done so that we might live and glorify him. And one of the reasons we've got to remember that as we look in this context is that we live in a world and all of us live in immediate context where, where we operate and where we, we interact with people uh, in, in, in homes and communities and neighborhoods and cities where people are in desperate need of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. They're dying and going to hell without Christ. And there is, as we, as we think about that, and then, then think about that idea that we have this treasure in jars of clay, that we who, who are so weak in and of ourselves are strong in Christ, there's one question that has got to be settled by every person who dares to claim allegiance to Christ, who, who dares stand up or raise their hand or just walk across the room and say, I love Jesus. There, there's one question that's got to be settled, and it, it kind of goes like this. Is it all about you, or is it all about Jesus? If you really want to just boil it down to the basics, is it all about you, or is it all about Jesus? And what I mean by that is, is your life in Christ and the way you live it and, and, and then share it, is it all about you? And I know that's kind of an oxymoron. How could life in Christ be all about us? But we're pretty good at making it that. <laughs> is it all about you or is it all about Jesus? Is it all about what you need to do to please God and to keep yourself in his good graces? Is it a works mentality where if you step out of line, you might get taken out of line for good? Or is it about what God has done to bring you to himself and what he is doing to keep you there and what he is going to do and what he purposes to do in you and through you for his glory 
and others good? That's the question that we've got to settle. Because if our, the answer to that question is going to drive our thoughts and our words and our actions and our engagement and our approach to those who do not know Jesus. It's kind of the idea of whatever you, you've got in your head and your heart about what the gospel is, that's what you're going to live and share. So we've got to get the gospel right. Now, as we've gone through this context, it's a little bit of more of a background before we get into these verses today. As we've gone through this context of, of God sending his people out, his sent ones, his apostles, with the gospel, we have seen the compassion of Christ that ought to really frame or shape our interaction with others. The Christ's compassion, it should motivate our mission-mindedness. It should motivate our activity in the gospel. We have seen God's calling that, that forms the basis of our living and giving the gospel. We have seen the character that God wants to, to work in and through us, display through us, to make the gospel attractive to those who will believe. Now, because we, we can't go out thinking, well, I'm going to be really clever, and I'm going to be really creative, and the way I do it, and the way I say it, and my natural good looks are just going to get me uh, in the door, and they're going to love Jesus because something about me. Again, let's go back to that question we've got to settle. Is it all about us, or all about Jesus? Um, the other thing we've seen is the caution with which Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples and saying, here's what you should expect. Don't have this idea in your head that's not realistic, that's not biblical about how it might be that everyone's going to love you and just accept the gospel the moment you, you know, try to present it. And, um, and then what we saw last week was Jesus calling for great courage on the part of his, of his people as, as, they, as they engage in courageous witness for Christ. They really get out of the comfort zone and engage courageously. So that brings us to verse 34 where we're at today. And remember, it's always in the middle, midst of, of, a, of an immediate context and a larger context. We're in the immediate context of Matthew chapter 10, the larger context of the gospel of Matthew. And, and so um, verse 34 is where we begin today. And we're really going to see some of the toughest and hard to understand stuff that Jesus said in his sermon on mission. In fact, two of the, really the two main points about uh, the sword and the cross here are, are, are um, largely misunderstood by a lot of us, a lot of Christians. And, and, um, but what Jesus is doing is he's getting to the heart of 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 what he has planned for every born-again believer. So we need to get this. We need, we need to understand this. Um, what we're going to see today is, is what Jesus came to do uh, as opposed to what he didn't come to do and, and what he purposes to have happen in us as he uses us and as he grows us. And, and it, by the way, it's not easy, nor is it painless, but because crucifixion hurts. It's a little bit of an understatement. I realize that. Crucifixion hurts. It's easy for me to say that right now. It's like me saying, you know, delivering a baby hurts. I've never done it, okay? Um, well, in the way it hurts. Um, but what we're going to see today is that this is good. It's good because it's from God. It's good because it's from God, and it leads to life. That death 
leads to life. So let's keep that in mind as we go. So let's look at verse 34. What's the first thing Jesus says? He says that he has come to bring. So he's saying, um, I'm, I'm, I've got a purpose here, and I've come to bring a sword, not peace. A sword, that's a sharp thing. That's made for war. It's, it's for a purpose, and it's, it's, it's really for a purpose to inflict pain. A sword, it's, it's not a pillow, okay? Uh, it's a sword, and it's not peace. And we're going to see this in the first four verses here, 34 through 37. Okay, so we'll look at those verses first. 34, Jesus really goes from saying, do not fear, in the passage immediately before this, where three times he says, do not fear. Now he says, do not think inaccurately about me. Don't, don't mistake or misunderstand why I came. So he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Now, why would he tell them, don't think that? Because they were thinking that. You wouldn't say it if they weren't. Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, we've got to figure out what that means. So I think what we should do is is take it apart, dismantle it, and then see what we see in the parts and, and how that frames the whole, okay? Kind of like disassembling an engine, just not as complicated, Okay. Um, so, first of all, think. He says, do not think. Now, God wants us to think, but he doesn't want us to think the wrong thing. Okay? It's really easy to think the wrong thing and to think you should do one thing and really do another. I was reading the other day about when the Titanic sank in, back in, I believe it was 1912. And there was the, the, the article I was reading was called Titanic Blunder. And it was the whole idea that, that there were two things that happened. One just came to light recently in September on September 23rd, uh, just in concert with the, 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 the release of a book on, on the subject. So I'm, I'm not sure, I can't, I can't guarantee the, the accuracy of these, these statements I'm going to make right now, but here's, here's why the story went. Part of it you know, part of it you go, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay? The first part was that um, when, when they saw that there, were, uh, there was an iceberg, uh, you know, coming towards them, <laughs> uh, right in front of them, and they were going towards it, and what they did, what the, the, the person at the, uh, the steerer person, uh, helmsman or whatever, uh, turned the wheel, but turned the wheel the wrong way. And you think, oh, come on. Well, it was in the midst, it was in the, in the, in the context of when they were switching over from sailing to steamships. And I don't know why they did this, but it was like, it was like driving on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. You know, in, in America, we drive on the right side of the road. Is that right? And, 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 and overseas, we drive on the left side. Well, the idea here was that when you turn it, you turn it one way to turn one way with, when you're sailing, and the other direction went, with a steamship. And so there, he turned the wrong way inadvertently, thinking, forgetting what kind of ship he was, he was steering. Okay, crucial error. But they had four minutes with which to figure that out. But the thing was, they, they, um, they found out too late. And, but the other thing that happened, which came out and coincided with the book was that the, the, there was a guy that made another mistake. He basically told them to keep sailing instead of just stop. And supposedly, if they wouldn't have kept moving, they could have actually served, uh, the, the, the boat, the, the ship wouldn't have sank and, uh, before everyone could have been rescued. So I believe it was like 1,200 or 1,500 people that died on the Titanic. So that was a, you know, a big deal. 
but the idea was you're thinking one thing and then you do the opposite, thinking you're doing the right thing. We don't want to do that with this verse where Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword because some people have taken that and gone way off the deep end. Okay, a lot of cults got started with scripture first and then they went off and twisted it and made it into something that wasn't from God. So you don't want to build uh, some teaching around this that doesn't jive with other parts of scripture. So what does it mean? Think means to practice, consider, um, suppose, don't think, don't suppose that I came to bring peace. Now Jesus is saying, um, don't think I came to bring the absence of strife, the presence of blessing. Um, but that's kind of a hard one to figure out because we were, we were told in, in other places that there would be no end to the extent of his government or of peace when he came. We, we know that we have peace with Christ through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he's speaking of the disciples' relationship to the world. Next. Christ's name brings controversy. He is a stone of stumbling. He is a rock of offense. So don't think I came to bring peace but a sword in the context of speaking about how they would be received by the world. Okay? Bring, he said, don't think that I came to bring peace. Bring is literally the word throw or cast or send. Hurl. Okay? Uh, the expectancy here of the disciples then is being pictured by Jesus by telling them what not to do. Jesus sees them as eagerly looking up for peace from God and as if it was something that was going to be thrown down from heaven to them. And they were expecting peace. It's like they were on tiptoe wondering, where, where is it? I, I, can, I can see it. it, it it's, it's right over there. And, and they're thinking the reign of peace is about to be inaugurated and consummated. And from now on, there would be only unity. And Jesus says, no. No, that's not how it's going to be. A sword is being tossed into the mix. So instead of looking up and, 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 and thinking that peace is going to be thrown down from heaven, there's a sword. So you better get out of the way because it's got a sharp point. It's a sudden hurling of a sword where peace is expected. And the wording expresses purpose. That he was going to do this because he planned it this way. This was not a mistake. Now, it, it makes sense that, again, that they would think that peace was going to permeate life for the disciples from then on. He was promised as the Prince of Peace. And again, like I mentioned, Isaiah said that there would be no end to, the, to his government, to his sovereign reign, or of peace. The Holy Spirit, through, through Zacharias, prophesied in Luke one, to say that John the Baptist was a forerunner of the sunrise from on high who would guide our feet in the way of peace. So it was only natural for them to think this. Angels sang it at Christ's birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Even before his crucifixion, Jesus said, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled or fearful. He said in John 6, verse 53, These things I have spoken that you might have peace. But the key is the fact that he qualified both promises in John 14 uh, and John 16. He says, Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
In verse 16, 33, he says, the, the world, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So he's saying he's going to give peace to those who he saves, but not to the world. So that whole idea of, you know, peace on earth and all that uh, only works in the context uh, where it says among, among those with whom he is pleased, among believers, among those he has uh, saved by no merit of their own, but only for his glory. And, and he says there's a sword coming. There's a sword being thrown. It's, it's, there's, there are different words, three main words for for sword in, in the New Testament. Um, this is the word makaira. It's that short sword. It's the dagger. It's the one that's used in hand-to-hand combat. And again, it's not a letter opener. It, it's made to open other things. Um, but here Jesus is using the word metaphorically, not literally, not, hey, here's, everyone, here's, your, here's your sword. Welcome to, welcome to discipleship. Here's your sword. Uh, no, our sword is the word of God. In one sense, right? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, were to take up. But here the word is, is what is, is a metaphorical word. It, it, it's, literal, it's not literal. And, and it's, it's re, it, remember Jesus' rebuke to, to the one who wanted to, uh, to take up the sword against those who were um, uh, arresting him in the Garden of Gethsemane? What he said, he said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Um, and we know that a sword can be a metaphor of God's judgment in Scripture. But here, here's what it stands for here. The sword here stands for the separation that would take place between those who believe and those who do not. It's pretty simple, actually. The separation that would take place between believers and unbelievers. So Christ's servants are to remember the nature of his mission. In stark terms, he describes this mission as bringing a sword to the earth, and it's going to be a sort of division in which the closest blood ties might be severed in the interest of spiritual ties of loyalty to Jesus Christ. And he demands total and primary loyalty. Um, saying uh, to submit completely and wholly to him is in fact, uh, it, we'll, we'll see in verse 39, to find your life. So that's why Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, I came to set a man against his father. Now this is going to sound tough here. It's a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are like, yeah, I know that one. Um, For a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now he is quoting Micah 7 verse 6. Almost word for word. Now Micah was describing the sin and rebellion in the days of King Ahaz, the Old Testament days. And what Jesus is saying is that his, if, the, if his followers, or as his followers align themselves with the prophets, think about Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, blessed are you who are persecuted for my sake, blessed are you when people uh, abuse you and hurl insults at you and say all kinds of things against you falsely because of me, just like they did with the prophets. He's saying then that the situation in Micah's time points to a greater division at Christ's coming. There's a greater division at Christ's coming because there will be, there will be members even in, in a household, some who believe and some who do not. And while they will love each other and be friendly and care for one another and, and all that, they will be family. They would do anything for one another. 
they would be enemies for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus uses this word set. He said, I came to set a man against his father or a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The word set is, is crucial here. It's significant. It, it means to cause a separation. It means to alienate. It means to set at variance. It means to, to break apart. And daughter-in-law here actually means bride. It carries the idea of comparative youth. The idea is that the bitter division brought about into households by the gospel will be shown in the fact that it would even affect family relations from the start. The newly married wife would be set against her mother-in-law. And by the way, take note of this one. Write this one down. Not due to personality conflicts. Not due to control issues. But due to one being born again believer in Christ and one not being. So if they're both believers, get along. Deal with it, whatever it is. But if you're an unbeliever and a a believer, just realize that this most likely, and, and even if it's covered, will be part of the picture. He says that the man's enemies will be the members of his household. Enemies is a strong word. It signifies utmost hatred, hostility in mind. It's division, not harmony. It's alienation and hostility. So the question for us might be this. In light of Christ's words, how am I supposed to relate to my family and friends who are unbelievers? Let's say you're married to an unbeliever. Let's say that you are one of your kids is an unbeliever. Let's say your parents are not believers. And, and by the way, I've, I've had a lot, of, a lot of times people will say, well, they're acting really badly in this season of life. They're not a believer, you know. And, and I've, had fa- I've heard family members basically pronounce unbeliever-hood on people. And, and only God knows those who are his. Remember 2 Timothy 2. And, and everyone who names the name of the Lord should abstain from wickedness. We should not have false hope that just because someone prayed a prayer once, they're going to be in heaven. Nor should we judge everyone's salvation left and right. But the idea here is what do you do if you have friends and family who quite clearly are unbelievers? I talked to a person this week, last Sunday actually, and I asked them, where are you with Jesus? Do you know Christ? And they said, no. So as far as I can tell, they're not a believer. Okay? So how do you do this? What, here's what you do. You do what Christians are called to do. You, you love them. You treat them honorably and kindly and you pray for them and, and you do everything you can to live and share the gospel with them. And remember this. Remember that Jesus brings the sword, not us. Jesus brings the sword to the party. We don't. It is metaphorical, not actual, and we are at peace with the Holy God, therefore at peace being alienated from unbelievers. We are called to live in peace with all. Remember that. Blessed are the peacemakers. Love your enemies. Love Jesus more than any other person, family, or thing, and, and you, will, you will be willing to be hated as a result. But remember this too. Let your speech be gracious. Colossians 4, 5 tells us that. Seasoned your speech with grace toward those who are outside the flock of God. And, and don't let any unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only words that are good for edification according to um, the need of the moment, as Ephesians 4.29 says. 
The idea is our true peace is with God, not those who are still at war with him. Our true peace is with God, not those who are still his enemies. And we are to love and be kind and reach out to, but we, we cannot have any true peace unless they are at peace with God. We've got to remember that. What harmony has Christ with Satan? Verse 37, Jesus tells us why it's so crucial. He says, He who loves father or mother more than me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. I, my, my mind goes straight to Eli in, in the Old Testament when Samuel heard from God, and, and one of the words of judgment against Eli was that he honored his sons above God. He didn't discipline his sons. And there is that, there is that temptation for us, especially if we're dealing with prodigals to soften the rigors of the far country, to, to not let them go through hardship when that is exactly what God wants to have happen so that hopefully they would come to repentance. And so, Jesus says, don't love your father or mother more than me. Don't love your son or your daughter more than me. Because if you do, you're not worthy of me. And worthy, the word worthy, takes us back to chapter 10 and verse 11, which is talking about a person who is willing and able to receive the gospel, to believe. In, in a sense, what he's saying is, if you love your father and mother more than me, you don't believe in me. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not believing in me. Similar to what Jesus said to the person who wanted to return and bury his father in chapter 8. But Jesus calls for us to give him an ultimate authority, supreme uh, ultimate supremacy uh, even, and by the way, Jesus' ultimate supremacy goes o- above fathers and mothers and children. Um, and by the way, this is something not even the most you know, uh, famous rabbi, the, the most highly regarded rabbi would not have dared to ask for this. What this is in verse 37 is a clear declaration of Christ's deity because only God deserves higher honor than father and mother. Think how much importance God puts on the fifth command. Honor your father and mother. And, and that just isn't just for kids. It's for all of us to honor our parents while they are living. To rise up and call them blessed. Even if, if you can only find one thing they did right, honor them. You know, now, later in life is not the, the, the time to settle scores with your parents. It's time to love them and, and let love cover a multitude of sins. This is a clear declaration of Christ's deity. Only God deserves higher honor than mother and father. And next, Jesus gets to the crux of the matter that Christ, and we know he came to die on a literal cross, and now he calls us to a cross, not comfort. Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Probably one of the most misused and misunderstood verses in, in the New Testament and really to fully understand the power of Jesus' words take up your cross by the way we're going to get, you know, get there in Matthew 16, 24 about what does it mean to deny yourself but it, it, here it says take up your cross what we, to understand that we need to know what it isn't what take up your cross is not so let's look at that briefly what your cross is not your cross is not some tough thing or person in your life. That's what most people think it is. The cross is not just bearing the difficulties and pains of life. 
Our cro- your cross is not your angry husband or your nagging wife. The cross is not that wayward child or that arthritic hip. We all have problems, and those who are saved and unsaved alike, and that's part of life. And no matter how tough life gets, those things that happen are not your cross. You're, you're misusing the scripture if you, if you say it that way. A, a mean person, a difficult relationship, financial hardship, uh, these may test your faith, but they're not your cross. Your cross, and I'm going to say it again, your cross is not your husband or your wife. It isn't your wayward children. It's not your crazy neighbor. Your cross isn't your difficulties. It's not your health. It's not the bad situations that you face in life. Here's what we say. We go, oh, you know, that's just the cross I need to bear. Oh, it's, it's my cross. No, it's not. It's a tough time in life. Or maybe it's you misunderstanding someone, but it's not your cross. That's not what Jesus meant. And, and, and secondly, your cross is not a substitute for the cross of Christ. Your cross isn't a self-righteous version of the only sacrifice for sinners. Where somehow you earn your way to God by your, your, your hard work. Uh, what you need to do there is repent of self-righteousness. If you think that you bearing some fake cross is going to get you closer and more accepted to God. Uh, you've got to repent of self-righteousness and self-glorification if that's the case. The third thing your cross is not, your cross is not something that gains you better standing or favor with God. And if you wrongly think of, of your cross as something that you must endure in life, you will think that since you must bear it, you must gain something for it. You know, no pain, no gain, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, w- nothing could be further from the truth in this context. Jesus owes us nothing. We owe him everything. So what does it mean to take up your cross? Jesus said it. And in fact, he said, if you don't, you're not believing in him. You're not worthy of him. You're not accepting the gospel. So what does it mean to take up your cross? First thing it means is it means dying to yourself. That's the heart of the matter. When Jesus spoke of the cross, he spoke of death. The cross is not just a place of suffering. It's a place of death. So when Jesus spoke of the cross, everyone in his audience knew what he was talking about. Crucifixion, by the way, was not a Jewish punishment. It was a Roman one. And Jesus uses this phrase now in light of of the death he was going to die. Verse 38, he he says, um, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So you see there's a, a process. You take the cross and you follow Christ. It's one of those sayings that's described in John 12, which the disciples didn't understand at first. The full meaning was revealed in light of later events. But the figure itself was borrowed from the practice which compelled criminals to bear their own cross to the place of their own execution. It, it, literally, his cross, his own cross. You pick it up and take it with you. In in one sense, every Christian bears the same cross, and it's painful death to self. Painful death to self. But there's an English proverb that says every cross has its inscription. Every cross has its inscription, the name of him for whom it is shaped. And, and, And all are not alike in that way. They're specifically fitted for each disciple. 
God knows what you need to die to. What, what about you needs to die? But in, in, in another sense, every Christian bears the same cross. It's dying to self. John MacArthur wrote this about the cross. The cross was an instrument of execution reserved for Rome's worst enemies. It was a symbol of the torture and death that awaited those who dared raise a hand against Roman authority. Not many years before Jesus and the disciples came to Caesarea Philippi, a hundred men had been crucified in the area. A century earlier, Alexander Janus had crucified 800 Jewish rebels at Jerusalem. And after the revolt that followed the death of Herod the Great, 2,000 Jews were crucified by the Roman proconsul Verus. Crucifixion on a smaller scale were a common sight. It's been estimated that perhaps some 30,000 crucifixions occurred under Roman authority during the life of Christ. And when Jesus says we are to take up our cross, he is saying that we are to live as if we were dead. Die to self, live to Christ. Galatians 2.20, what does it say? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It's the idea of dying to self while alive. It's the idea of Galatians 6.14. May it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. First of all, taking your cross means dying to yourself. Dying to yourself. Secondly, it means giving yourself without reservation to Christ's lordship. Verse 37, back to verse 37, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's calling us to give him ultimate supremacy. And the 12, when they heard these words, would have instantly known what this meant. It meant giving themselves wholeheartedly to Christ's lordship. The people of Jesus' day were concrete thinkers. They knew what was happening. When he spoke about the cross, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They had watched many a person be marched to their own death by Roman soldiers carrying their crosses. And when a criminal was forced to carry his cross to the place of his execution, he was admitting the Roman Empire had the right over his life to carry out that sentence. And as we engage in following Jesus, it is our privilege to say that he has sovereign rule over our lives. That he is our captain, that he is our Lord, that he is our master. Therefore, we submit ourselves to him. Take up your cross also means, thirdly, that you are willing to lose everything for Christ. That you are willing to give up everything for Christ. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, and whoever gives, whoever does not, excuse me, whoever finds his life There's a lot of whoever's in these verses. Uh, Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Found, lost, for my sake. No earthly sacrifice can compare to what we gain in Christ. But notice that Jesus uses past participles, past tense words, found, lost. Jesus knew what they would suffer and he knew how he would change them through that. It's good news for them. Good news for us who don't, who find it difficult to notice change in our lives. One of the privileges I have is standing up here every Sunday and seeing your beautiful faces. And there's another thing. 
And this is part of being uh, associated with people in the family of God. You can see people changing. And sometimes we can't see the change that God is bringing about in our lives. But I've got a unique vantage point. And I can see God at work in your lives. I can see God doing a work of grace in you and through you in many different ways. Everything is supposed to be for Christ's sake. He says, you're going to lose your life for my sake. And that means a willing sacrifice of everything, everything you have for the sake of Christ. That means your ambitions, what you want. That means your opinions, what you think. That means your judgments, your successes, your failures, your your pet sins. You know, some of us have little pet sins we care about in our back pocket. Everything is for Christ's sake because of Jesus and for Jesus. Probably one of the books that have impacted me the most this year is Milton Vincent's book, A, a Gospel Primer for Christians. Uh, I keep it close uh, because it, it has been and continues to be very helpful and challenging to me. Uh, here's one of the things he says about crucifixion. He says, when my flesh yearns for some prohibited thing, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no one, I must die. When, I, when I'm shattered by hardships I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to wrongs done against me, I must die. When enticed by the allurements of the world, I must die. When wanting to keep besetting sins a secret, I must die. When dreams that are good are shoved aside, I must die. And it's kind of like the guy with the Titanic turning right instead of left. We want to do the opposite, but we must die to ourself. Romans 6, 5 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's like Paul saying, I die daily. Daily. We're to die to self. We're to give ourselves without reservation to Christ's lordship. We are, we are to be willing to give up everything for Christ so that we might follow him wherever he leads. There is a so that in daily living before we get to heaven. So that we might follow him wherever he leads and that's going to lead us to places that are not always comfortable and it's going to lead us to places where people need Jesus. And that is the most important activity for us to be engaged in while we are here and waiting for heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your your goodness to us. We say we know crucifixion hurts. We know that it was a literal punishment that was a very strong deterrent and warning to others to not rebel in the days of Christ. We know that Jesus came to earth to die on a cross for our sins, a real cross. But we also know that he used this image with, with profound significance as an example of discipleship with, with his followers. And we know, Lord, that, that, that Christ's path of suffering and death on the cross is the ultimate example His obedience to the Father's will. He 
prayed before he was crucified, not my will but yours alone. And we know, Lord, we must die to our will and take up your will. We thank you, Lord, that Christ, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we who follow Christ are the living dead. We live crucified, but we remember that it leads to life. That the gospel teaches us that dying is not the end, but the beginning. And we know we have been, we have been buried with him, but, but just as Christ was risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might too walk in newness of life. And we thank you, Lord, that we, we walk in newness of life and we come to you through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, as revealed in your word alone, for God's glory alone. And so we can, we can say, as Paul did, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Lord, that is our prayer. And we know, Lord, that is your work in us. We thank you in Jesus' name.